As many of our UNT students face unexpected challenges and expenses related to the coronavirus, the new UNT CARES Fund is here to help them persevere. Gifts made to this special fund will meet short-term needs so our students can continue to have long-term success. Visit one.unt.edu slash untcares to make a gift today. Your generosity will go a long way in helping UNT students stay safe, healthy, and on track to graduate. You're listening to the Ali at UNT podcast, recorded at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas. This podcast features interviews with the faculty, members, and staff who are a part of OLLI at UNT's community of lifelong learners. To learn more about our program, please visit our website, olli.unt.edu, or send us an email at olli at unt.edu. Now let's join our host, OLLI at UNT member, Susan Supak. This is Susan Supak speaking at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute at the University of North Texas in Denton, Texas, known to most of us as Ollie. Many of you will be familiar with our guest today. He's none other than Ollie's own Jordan Williams, the Senior Communications Specialist for Lifelong Learning and Community Engagement at UNT, whose department runs Ollie at UNT and oversees the UNT Retiree Association. Jordan received his BA in English with a concentration in creative writing and his master's in literature, both from UNT. Jordan has interviewed musicians for the Tulsa Voice, including Adrian Young and Ali Shaheed Muhammad, as well as Verdane White of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Amazing interviews, too, I might add. His book reviews have appeared in American Micro Reviews and Interviews. Jordan is also an accomplished bass guitarist, playing for several local artists and bands, including Mediva Loca, which, by the way, was voted Best Band by the Dallas Voice Readers Voice Awards for three years in a row. Jordan is also an invaluable partner with me on producing this podcast. It is Jordan's melodious voice in the introduction. Jordan also handles the technical aspects and the weekly postings. Welcome, Jordan. Thank you for having me, uh, Susan. I want to also mention that Susan does a lot of the really important work on this podcast, too. I know a lot of you listening might be interested to know behind the scenes. She does great work preparing for these interviews and doing editing, so it really is a pleasure to partner with you on these. It certainly is. It's wonderful. We are fortunate to have Jordan join us to discuss Afrofuturism, explaining what it is and its importance in literature and culture. Afrofuturism might be a term some of the listeners are not familiar with. Jordan, where does the term come from? The first person to be credited with coining the term is a cultural critic named Mark Derry. And in 1994, he wrote an essay titled Black to the Future. In that essay, he was really concerned with making two main points. The first point was that the experiences of Black people were particularly well-suited for expression through science fiction. And some of his reasoning behind that was, when you consider science fiction, most sci-fi depicts aliens coming to Earth and using their superior technology to try to either exterminate or enslave 
humanity. And so he sort of turns that idea around. There's actually one quote in the essay that illustrates this point. So I'll go ahead and read that. He says, African Americans, in a very real sense, are the descendants of alien abductees. They inhabit a sci-fi nightmare in which unseen but no less impassable force fields of intolerance frustrate their movements, and technology is too often brought to bear on their black bodies. So in that quote, I think you can kind of see that he's really thinking about this in terms of the most negative aspects of racism that we've experienced in this country. That's really where his focus is, this idea that black people descending from slaves are experiencing life in a world that's they're sort of alien from and experience the same kind of things that we imagine in science fiction movies. And so the second thing that he was concerned with in that essay was that he was basically surprised and maybe even disappointed that there weren't more prominent black sci-fi writers and artists. That essay contains conversations he has with black authors and intellectuals, and through these conversations, he sort of ironically ends up tracing a lot of the history of black artists who actually have expressed themselves by employing elements of science fiction in particular. Now, he definitely gets the credit for coining the term, and we just kind of laid out a little bit there of why he coins that term and what he thought Afrofuturism could really represent. But I also think it's important to note that after coining that term, people started to use it in a lot of different ways. And so he, like I said, took more of a negative aspect of looking at the worst experiences that Black people have had and trying to argue that they could be communicated well through science fiction. But a lot of the people who have come behind him and use that term really almost take the opposite approach and use the idea of imagining Black people in works of science fiction as a way to have a really positive vision of the future and also a way to just express a vision of the future that is inclusive of all races, not even just Black people. So he definitely gets credit for coming up with the term. But as we discuss here, I think the term now comes to represent a lot more than he initially brought to it. That is such a powerful and interesting connection with the genre of science fiction. What is the best way for us to understand Afrofuturism? Truly, we know it's important just in your explanation of that relationship, but are there other aspects of it that we should be aware of as we delve more deeply into discovering Afrofuturism? Yeah, absolutely. Afrofuturism it's a term that's been used more frequently recently, I think, primarily because of a movie that came out a couple of years ago, Black Panther, which is part of the Marvel comic universe. And admittedly, I know very little about the Avengers and all of that. I've seen a few of the movies, so I know it's tied into all of those stories. But Black Panther in particular centered around a character who's actually the ruler of Wakanda, which is an imagined futuristic society, basically a futuristic African society. And so futuristic African society obviously makes people think of Afrofuturism. And that's, a again, like a very straightforward surface level way to understand the term that if you have an imagining of black people living in the future, it's pretty well Afrofuturism. But some of the other key concepts that I think help us understand why that's significant to imagine black people living in a futuristic society, the first concept is post-colonialism. This is essentially a field of study, and it's something I was introduced to in graduate school studying literature but I'm still working through a post-colonialism reading list that I started back in grad school. So uh, it's an immense subject that I'll do my best to introduce. 
Postcolonialism describes the effort to study the impact or convey the effects of colonialism on former colonies. When we talk about the colonialism in that term, we're usually focusing in on the period of imperial expansion between roughly the 17th and 20th centuries. So European empires colonizing places on the African continent, Asia, and the Americas. The way that I try to think about this is to help myself understand post-colonialism is to think about the old saying that history is written by the victors. I think post-colonialism is all about correcting that. So it's about looking at the established history of former empires and asking, is this one-sided? Are there additional perspectives that we could include to consider history in a different light? Uh, so it's about prioritizing the voices of colonized people and highlighting their experience so that it can be included in our overall understanding of history. So in a certain way, the post in post-colonialism indicates that we're moving beyond the mindset of colonialism, moving beyond the narrow perspective of the people who are in power to move on to a more inclusive perspective. The post in the term also reflects the fact that this type of thinking didn't really start to flourish until after European empires passed the peak of their power. By the time we get up to World War II, a lot of those empires are in decline. As sort of a flip side to that, a lot of the residents of those colonies are fomenting a lot of nationalist movements and independence movements. And I think one of the main ways that we normally look at the question of colonial independence in Africa and in Latin America is through sort of a Cold War framework. And I think there's good reason for that, because that was really the, the highest period of Cold War tensions. And as a lot of these European countries were either losing their control over colonies through war or having to sort of negotiate releasing these colonies because they weren't able to support them anymore, a lot of questions arose around what sort of independent countries would come in the wake of this. And there was obviously a real question about as these countries loose their ties with European countries and Western European countries primarily, would they be susceptible to falling under the influence of communist government or uh, socialist governments, the Soviet Union? And that was really, I think, the primary concern of a lot of, of us living in the West. That's really the number one concern because it, it relates to everybody's safety and the possibility of war. But Post-colonialism is really a bigger umbrella that also looks at the people living in those colonized places that are becoming independent and asks a lot of really deep existential philosophical questions about what it means to no longer live under the imperial rule. A lot of the questions that post-colonialism sort of deals with is you have African people who are now speaking French and learning history through the French education system, for example. People started to ask a lot of questions about, are we really able to express our true selves if we're speaking French, as opposed to the indigenous languages that our ancestors would have spoken before colonialism? There's sort of this question of, has our culture been put on pause during this period? And can we reclaim that? So there's a lot of focus on the past of African countries, again, as an example, and what kind of language did they speak? What kind of art did they produce? What kind of government did they have? economic structure, there's a real push by a lot of post-colonial thinkers to try to see if there's some way to reclaim that. I think that gives a little bit of insight into why that's relevant to Afrofuturism. When you're talking about, especially, for example, an African writer writing a story about a future African society, it's a similar kind of project. There's a question of what kind of language are these African people going to be speaking? And if you 
depict them speaking some variation of an African language that has a sort of meaning because we can imagine that that means that they have somehow reclaimed some of their culture that might have been on pause or even lost during a period of colonialism. And the creation of that sort of art, it's sort of a way to sort of assert your own cultural identity to be able to say that we're not just defined by European images and culture and history. We have our own thing to bring to the table. And so the range of post-colonial influence on Afrofuturism, I think, goes from the political to the aesthetic, how things look, what kind of colors and designs are used in Afrofuturistic art and movies and things like that, to very personal questions of, there's a, a post-colonial thinker named France Fanon, who's a, is a very revolutionary political figure, as well as a philosopher, but one of his most famous works is called Black Skin, White Masks. And I think that title is really evocative because he was really concerned with whether or not Black people either suppress their true inner identity or take on some sort of mask because they feel the need to reflect a certain type of identity to a European culture. But that's the kind of issues that are at stake in post-colonialism. What a healthy expression through art for a culture of people to be able to do that. I think in terms of the Native Americans, I would find something like this extremely helpful for them as well in recapturing some of the culture that was lost, perhaps in the way that their people have lived through the years. I think it's a great point to bring up because a lot of times when I try to think about post-colonialism or even a subject like Afrofuturism, I'm a Black American, but I still experience my life as an American. So even though I know my ancestry does eventually go back to Africa, and my mother was actually born in Jamaica, so by way of Jamaica, I still see the world through an American lens. And that involves a certain sort of American history. And I think when you start thinking about the native tribes that were in this land before America was founded, that is really the best parallel to what we think about in African colonies and what they went through after becoming independent. Because when our country became independent, that really didn't affect the indigenous people the same way. And like I said, the British, the former British colonists, they changed their culture as they became independent from England. But a lot of the history that they might have thought of as their own history was still sort of continuous. They just knew that they wanted to be independent from the way that the monarchy was handling things and wanted to be more free and make more decisions. But culturally, there wasn't such an existential crisis, I think. And there are other concepts, too, with Afrofuturism that deal in the future and with speculative fiction. Can you explain that to us? Sure, yeah. So there are a few more. One is Afrocentrism, which is a really nice term because it sounds like what it is. Afrocentrism is really just any effort to preserve or promote the history, the culture, and the politics of Africans or people of African descent. So tying it in a little bit with post-colonialism, Afrocentrism really was on the rise in the post-colonial period, the post-World War II period, as people in Africa and people of African descent in America, in Europe, really started to, both from an academic perspective, with scholarship, or just through fashion in everyday life, started to really be more interested in preserving and promoting African culture. So in the 70s, I want to say, or probably actually in the, the 1960s, one of the things in fashion that I know became common was to use African fabrics and designs in fashion. And that became a big thing that really, as far as I know, didn't happen in European societies prior or the American society prior to that. But it became a big influence that is still around to this day. A lot of the color schemes of you know more typical African designs are more prevalent because of this movement. And in scholarship, it was the same way. 
One other area that relates to Afrofuturism is called futures studies. Uh, so this is another area I'm still just learning about, but people who do this are basically trying to come up with long-term forecasts based on current trends. So this has to do with what kind of technology is likely to exist far into the future, and how are people going to incorporate that technology into their lives? How will all these changes affect how societies organize themselves, uh, politically and socially? What can the attitudes of people living today tell us about what people's attitudes will be in the future? What this puts me in the mind of are the old world's fairs, where they'd have an exhibit on the world of tomorrow, showing how people would be living in the future. People who make these predictions are often called futurists, and I think that if you can consider someone to be an Afrofuturist, they're probably doing a similar thing, sort of extrapolating a possible future based on our current situation and how we got here. And the last term that I think is important is speculative fiction. This is one of those terms where I feel like it's not the best term that we English majors could have come up with, because it frankly seems a little bit redundant that fiction would be speculative. But when we use that term, we're really talking about any fiction that's defined by its inclusion of elements that break the physical laws, scientific limits, or social rules of our reality. So some examples would include science fiction, but also things like fantasy, horror, or dystopia, where it's imagining a society that's taken a turn for the worst. And a good example of the range of speculative fiction would be a show like The Twilight Zone. Some of the episodes of that show are sort of straightforward science fiction. They involve life in space or aliens or robots or, or something like that. But some are just stories that are a little bit off. I think there's one episode where a fighter pilot crashes his plane, wakes up, and then the people around him aren't recognizing things that he remembers. So he remembers crashing with the co-pilot. Then I think he wakes up and nobody around him remembers that the co-pilot was in the bed next to him. And so it's kind of a horror element there. So speculative fiction incorporates stories like that. I think another example might be Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis, which involves uh, Gregor, uh, the main character, waking up one morning. He's a human being, obviously, but he wakes up one morning as a giant bug. And there's no real science fiction explanation for him being transformed into a bug. It's just sort of laid out there that that happens one morning and then he has to try to go about his regular life and absurd things happen as a result of that. Speculative fiction is is really any fiction that challenges our view of reality without necessarily giving us a clear-cut explanation as to why something out of the ordinary is happening. Can you give us some examples of Afrofuturism? Sure. Like I said, one of the more recent examples would be the Black Panther film that came out as part of the Marvel Universe. But there are also two figures that come up most often in discussions of Afrofuturism. One of those individuals is not very well known, and the other I think a lot of people are going to be familiar with. So first, there is a man named Sun Ra, who was actually born with the name Herman Blunt, and he was a jazz musician, he was also a composer and an activist, and he, he's really famous for pushing musical boundaries and incorporating space travel as a central theme in his art. But he's also a little bit stranger than just that because he lived basically, he was most active, I think, in the 1950s and, and 60s. And so the fact that he incorporated space travel as part of his themes in his art really wasn't that uncommon. He was definitely at the forefront of that and one of the first people to do it. But obviously space travel was becoming more of a very popular subject in the 1950s and 60s because it was starting to happen. So he ultimately ended up kind of fitting in somewhat 
with those themes, but he had some very unique and, and I would even say strange ideas about space travel, about the situation of Black people on planet Earth, as he would sort of describe it. And I think you can best understand him as the type of artist who gets dedicated to a certain kind of theme to a point that the rest of us might look at this person and, and wonder how sane they are. Um, he, 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 and even some of the music that you listen to, you know, he has some music that sounds more or less like jazz that you can kind of tap your foot to and maybe even dance to. And then he goes all the full range to the kind of avant-garde abstract jazz that sounds just like random noises. And he had really deeply held philosophical beliefs about what his music could do for people as a form of therapy that he could kind of shake them out of their complacency with the current situation on earth. And he was very concerned with the plight of black people in America specifically, but he also, he wasn't somebody who advocated for new laws to be passed or certain candidates to win elections. He was really caught up in this idea that I don't know how much he believed this, but he certainly promoted the idea that he himself had been abducted into space and, and shown another world and, and shown a different way of existing. And, and his sort of idea was that he was going to free humanity from our constricted beliefs and understandings of things and take us to space through his music. So he's a very unusual and unique kind of character, but he had a big influence. I mean, a lot of the major jazz musicians of that time were aware of what he was doing. And even if they didn't go as far as he did with some of his musical explorations, even people like John Coltrane and Miles Davis that we know, as they started to be more experimental in some of the things they were doing, his influence was really felt in that. I highly recommend a YouTube lookup of him for our listeners. Maybe we can post a link because he's quite an interesting character. Yeah, it ended up being a little bit of a, what's the word I'm looking for? Synchronicity, because I know that you were doing some independent poetry study and, and Sun Ra was a poet of sorts and, and he actually came up in your class, which I found surprising because again, he's not, he's not widely known, a widely known figure. Yeah, it was actually a very beautiful poem that I read in a class on poetry and spirituality. And he talked about being in another dimension as a human being, which fits right in with what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. And another thing that he really brought to the table, we talked about Afrocentrism. He was somebody who incorporated the idea of, number one, that he was a big believer. He read voraciously. And so he read a lot of the Afrocentric histories of Africa and ancient African empires. So he was very much obsessed with, with this idea that, for example, ancient Egypt and that kingdom was an example of African peoples reaching the heights of civilization and sort of a counter narrative to the idea that black people were second class citizens. He was one of the early almost celebrities to embrace this idea that if you think about Egyptian culture specifically, then you're looking at African people really at the height of civilization and sophistication. And so his band on stage would wear outfits that were sort of a mix of what they thought at the time of sort of space clothes and alien almost kind of looks, but combined with a lot of strong Egyptian influences. There are a lot of pictures of Sun Ra wearing headgear that looks very reminiscent of what we associate with the Egyptian pharaohs. And he actually did one concert in Egypt. There's one striking picture of his band performing in front of, I think, a projected image of probably the tomb of Tutankhamun, which I think might have been very popular at that time. But when you think of bands that came almost immediately after Sun Ra's height in the 60s, like Earth, Wind & Fire, or Parliament Funkadelic or P-Funk, 
one of their famous songs is Flashlight, but another famous song is Mothership Connection. And they talk about the mothership coming down and on stage, they would literally have a, a big mothership that would come down on stage. And Earth, Wind and Fire was very much into images of pyramids and Egyptian imagery. And that's really part of the tradition of Sun Ra. So probably most people listening are familiar with Parliament Funkadelic or P-Funk or Earth, Wind and Fire, even if they don't know Sun Ra, but there is some legacy there as well. Well, I have to say, when I first saw Sun Ra on a YouTube episode, my first thought was, that's really bizarre. But once you understand these concepts that go into it, it's really quite brilliant. Yeah, I think, like I said, I think he's one of those people that because he talks about being abducted by aliens and things like that, it's very easy to think, well, he's just clearly not mentally healthy all the way, which may or may not be true. But I think it's more accurate to think of him as just one of the types of artists that sometimes come along that's just so dedicated to a certain kind of artistic vision that it, it, I think it did kind of consume him to a degree. But it's not, it's not random, and he's not doing all of this because he has no grip on reality. He's doing all of it very, very intentionally and has thought everything that he does, he's thinking about very deeply and thoroughly, even if it's something that none of us would ever think to do or, or believe. And so there's one other figure that I think is going to be more well-known to people, and that is Lieutenant Uhura, who was a character played on Star Trek by the actress Nichelle Nichols. And she comes up often whenever you look at essays or documentaries talking about Afrofuturism. Number one, because she was really one of the first Black actresses to have a major role on a television show, and it happens to be Star Trek, which meant that she was portraying a Black person living in the future. And one of the stories that comes through often, that she tells often actually, has to do with when she met a particularly famous Star Trek fan. And the way she tells the story, I think it was either after the first or maybe second season of Star Trek. And Star Trek at the time, it had kind of a cult following and it was popular in a sense, but I don't think it was totally successful from a ratings point of view or, or anything like that. So it wasn't always, I think, clear how big of a success it was at the time. And so she was actually thinking about leaving the show. I think her background was in musical theater and she wanted to go back to that. And I think she was at some events that it might have been an NAACP event or, or some sort of civil rights related event. And somebody came up to her and said that there was a Star Trek fan who wanted to talk to her. So they take her around to see the fan. And when she gets there, she realizes that the fan is none other than Martin Luther King Jr. Wow. So she, she comes face to face with him. And it's this very... You can almost wish that you were a fly on the wall to see this weird reversal where he's a fan of hers. That's the sort of the orientation of the situation rather than obviously her being amazed to be meeting him. It's kind of vice versa. And so they go through this little moment where he talks about how much he loves the show and how big a fan he is. And she tells him that she's planning on leaving the show. And one of the videos I saw of her telling the story, it was just like, all of the fun and the, the enjoyment just completely drained out of his face. And he just says very seriously, like, no, you cannot do this. And he explains how this is one of the only shows that he and Coretta Scott King allow their children to stay up and watch on TV, which in itself is kind of an interesting insight into his life. You know, we think about him often as all the work he did away from his family. And we know that that was a big part of the stress, but there clearly were these moments where the family would gather around the TV and, and they would be watching Star Trek. And he says that this is a role that allows people to see a Black person on TV 
not just in a black role, but in an equal role, because she's eventually a lieutenant on the show and is on the bridge crew with Captain Kurt and everybody else. And on that bridge, I know there's like a Russian character, an Asian character as well. So it really is sort of intentionally diverse at a time when that would have been very noticeable. And there was one other person, I think, who was involved in the show who described her role as, I think she was the communications officer. So mm-hmm. if, if there was any communications coming in or anything to be sort of heard outside the ship, she would be the one to hear it. And so what this person who worked on the show said that anytime Uhura said, Captain, everybody on the bridge turns to look at her. <laughs> and so, yeah, Martin Luther King says, you know, you, you can't leave the show. It's too important. And as she tells it, that was probably, as we can imagine, good enough reason for her to stay with the show. Absolutely. And what another wonderful contribution he made, because it would have been such a loss. And there weren't that many people in TV and movies presenting the role that she presented. It was extremely important. Thank goodness she didn't quit. Absolutely. It It was very intentionally done by Gene Roddenberry, the creator of that show. And through that role, she went on to actually work with NASA to recruit female astronauts specifically, but a lot of female, not just black female, but females into the space program, engineers and things like that. And she talks about how wherever she goes, whether it's two events that are Star Trek events or two events that are NASA events, she always meets younger people who, younger women in particular, who would talk about how seeing her on TV was one of the main things that inspired them to go into their field, again, whether it's engineering or, or whatever it might be. And I think this is really in contrast a little bit to the top of the episode. We talked about Mark Derry and how he had really kind of a negative view of what science fiction could mean in the expression of Black experience, that it would be a way to talk about some of the darkest periods of African-American life in particular. But really, and he, and he mentions Lieutenant Uhura in his essay, but really what she represents, I think, is the opposite. It's one of the most optimistic examples of Afrofuturism and the optimistic impact it can have. Because we don't necessarily think about it this way, but when you listen to a Martin Luther King Jr. speech, so much of what he's talking about, his most famous speech, the I Have a Dream speech, it's framed as a dream, but it's really a vision of the future. It's his, his children, right? So he is thinking about the future and what Black people's place is in it. And so the role of Uhura really fits perfectly into that. Well, that was something that I wanted to bring up, and you may be addressing it later as we discuss one of the short stories in Afrofuturism. But I had noticed there's a certain bleakness in the tone of Afrofuturism. And even those stories that reflect more of predictions in the future, is there a particular reason for the bleakness? I think the best way to answer that question is that, especially when it comes to and I'll just sort of narrow it to the art of African-Americans in particular, I think when there are Black artists who are thinking about their form of expression, I think they largely all of them tend to be very conscious of the fact that because we have the history we do in this country of racial violence and racial discrimination, that although nobody asked for it to be that way, it does give Black people a certain sort of innate sense and an innate experience of some of the more negative aspects of life. Black people aren't the only ones who have ever been discriminated against, and discrimination takes a lot of different forms, some of which aren't racial at all. But the fact that so much of Black experience, especially in a certain time period where I think Afrofuturism really sort of came into its own in the 50s and 60s, that was on the forefront of everyone's minds. 
And I think that certain experiences that uh, people go through tends to come out in the art. So I think it's a way of sort of probably even from a therapeutic standpoint of working out some of that trauma that people maybe either experience directly or experience generationally. You know, if your parents or your grandparents went through something extremely scarring because of the color of their skin, in a lot of ways that gets passed down, even if they don't tell the next generation specifically all the details. In the way that it affects them, it affects the way they live their lives, then the next generations are raised and see that example. So I think that's probably the best way to maybe start thinking about that aspect. But I also think that there is there's a real tension there among artists as well, and that I think sometimes artists do get tired of being pigeonholed in that way. And so I don't know if Black Panther is a perfect example of that because it's also just a kind of a big multi-billion dollar film series that it's part of. And it's, so it's telling that part of the story too. But that's one of the more optimistic elements. And of course, Lieutenant Uhura was really just an optimistic depiction of a Black person living in the future. So I think there are other elements and, and sometimes that tension is really felt. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Well, this has been fascinating because I certainly never knew all of this information about Nichelle Nichols in particular and her role in helping women to join the space program. Now, before the COVID-19 pandemic, you were scheduled to lead a group discussion of Leslie Ninka Arama's short story, What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky. And I had the pleasure of listening to a wonderful narration by LeVar Burton. And in case our listeners are not sure who he was, if you've ever seen The Reading Rainbow, he was the gentleman on Reading Rainbow. And the narration is really incredible. And hopefully we can put that link on the podcast. But in what ways is that story an example of Afrofuturism? Yeah, I really wanted to do my group discussion on that story as an example of Afrofuturism because... Although it does contain elements of science fiction, I really enjoyed the fact that this particular story, it doesn't involve people in space. And a lot of times when there's futuristic fiction written, it automatically takes place in space. And those are often very popular. But I think sometimes people tend to discount works of fiction about people in space or see it as kind of a niche thing and maybe not as sophisticated as other forms of art or literature. But what it means when a man falls from the sky is a story that I think basically contains All of the elements that we talked about at the top of the episode, post-colonialism, Afrocentrism, futures studies, and speculative fiction. And so to give a little bit of the context of the story, there's a main character who is a mathematician living in a country that's called the Biafran and British Alliance, I believe is what it's called. And essentially, she lives in this area that's referred to as Biafra. And for those who might not know, Biafra was... It was the name of one of the sort of splinter independence movements that was taking place in Nigeria after Nigerian independence from Great Britain. And the reason they refer to themselves as Biafra is because there's basically some amount of historical evidence that when, for example, explorers in the 15th and 16th century were coming through the area of Africa that we now consider Nigeria, they would either label their maps to say Biafra or some sort of permutation of that spelling. And so there's some indication that there was a civilization there or a people there that either were called called themselves Biafran or something along those lines. And so again, it was part of that trend of reaching back into history for people who are 
pushing for their independence to claim their history. And that's why this term was used by some of the independence fighters and people in the mid 20th century. So this story takes place in the future and it's under this country that still contains that name. So there, I think the influence of post-colonialism and that our author is writing a story that takes place in what we would consider Nigeria, but gives it a name that refers back to what is most likely the sort of, we might say, indigenous origin of the people in that region. So it deals with that aspect of post-colonialism. And there are other really interesting ways. I, I do recommend that people listen to the, the reading of the story or perhaps go read it themselves because there's a lot going on there. But it imagines a future in which basically the worst impacts of climate change have happened. It actually lays out that North America and Europe are almost completely underwater. And so it ends up being the African continent and Australia that are the major places where people can actually live. And there are all sorts of tragedies that go into that. And by the way, that's an example of the influence of future studies, because if this is an imagining of one of the potential outcomes of climate change. I think this would have to be one of the worst ones because it's, it's talking about basically entire continents being flooded. And then there's an element of Afrocentrism as well. Our author was actually born in Nigeria. So part of this is just the result of the fact that this is her home that she's writing about. But also throughout the story, because Africa is one of the continents that has the most land available for people to live on, the importance of African people and African governments in the story is elevated to a point that I think we might think of as almost a reversal of what we would expect. We tend to expect, with some justification because of our recent history, that the African continent and countries on it are going to bear the brunt of any sort of disaster, especially natural disaster, because the countries aren't as wealthy as Europe and uh, North America, for example. Uh, but that's really reversed in this story, which leads to its own sort of Afrocentrism, in that this is a story of the future told from the perspective of African people living in an African country in a scenario where they actually have a certain amount of power in world affairs. And of course, all of this also falls under speculative fiction because it's imagining a future in which we haven't made it yet, but also our main character is a mathematician, but in this version of the future, mathematicians have actually figured out a formula that sort of unlocks all of the mysteries of humanity almost. It allows people to fly without, you know, obviously wings or anything like that, just to basically rise up off the ground using math. And her particular job is to actually use this knowledge of a mathematical formula to remove people's trauma and grief, which is something that's obviously elevated to quite an extent with all the disasters that have happened in the wake of climate change. So there's this speculative element where we have a mathematic formula that's not ever really described. And, and obviously it's, I think, because there would be no way to actually describe how a mathematic formula would be able to accomplish all of this. But then one of the genres of speculative fiction that I mentioned was dystopia. And briefly, one of the really interesting definitions at the core of that term dystopia is that a dystopian story is one that imagines how a idealized and quote unquote perfect society might go wrong. And so what we see in this particular story is that the math that's supposed to allow humans to do amazing things like fly and, and be able to remove trauma and depression just with a simple formula starts to break down and, and they, they start to really doubt whether or not either this formula is as powerful as people thought it would be, or if, if there aren't any unseen consequences that might be so dire that it might call into question whether this should even be done. 
So again, it, it kind of requires reading the entire story to get a lot of the details and everything that's going on. But I think it's a good example for people who might be interested in Afrofuturism, but may or may not be the kind of person who normally goes out to see a movie like Black Panther, which is based on a comic book, or is interested in watching Star Trek, which is, is much more, I think, popular now than it has been in the past. But for some people, it might be still a little nerdy for them. This is an example of a story that I think has some of the good writing and storytelling and and sort of weight to it that I think we expect from something like literature that we don't necessarily expect from you know a science fiction story. It was an excellent choice for a group discussion because there are so many elements in the story that lend themselves to a really good discussion. I can only say I had wished that the short story was longer because it's fascinating. And there are, as you say, there's so much to it. There really is. Now, if people are interested in learning more about Afrofuturism, what should they do, Jordan? Well, we've mentioned some figures that you could look into. Obviously, Sun Ra and Nichelle Nichols are very interesting stories in and of themselves. But also, this summer, because of the pandemic, we're planning to have video lectures in place of our normal in-person classes. And so my plan is to record one of those videos about Afrofuturism and talk about some of the things that we've talked about today but also go more in depth and, and provide more information about the figures that we've mentioned like Sun Ra, and then also maybe include some of the other figures that we weren't able to mention today. So people should keep their eyes out for that this summer and like maybe listen to what it means when a man falls from the sky, which we'll share a link to. And as Susan said, it's read by LeVar Burton, who did the Reading Rainbow series, I think in the 80s and 90s, and was also on Star Trek himself. So there's another Star Trek connection there. This has been really fascinating. I I can't imagine, but that you're going to have a lot of signups after this because this is quite a topic and one that I'm sure many of the listeners aren't familiar with. I can't thank you enough, Jordan. This has been so interesting. I didn't know much about Afrofuturism other than just a very brief introduction. Thank you. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you, Susan. This has been Susan Supak at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute speaking with Jordan Williams at the University of North Texas. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go back and listen to our previous interviews, which you can find on our website, olli.unt.edu slash podcast, or by searching for the Ollie at UNT podcast in your favorite podcast app. While you're in the app, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating. We also encourage you to share our podcast with your family and friends. Join us again next week for another episode.